It is for me a great joy to be with you here at First Methodist Church in Mansfield. And I just think you're incredibly blessed by this music and by your pastoral staff and leadership and, and all the church staff. And would you join me in just letting them all know our appreciation? You know, as we gather on a, on a day like today and a bishop comes, a lot of people don't even know what a bishop is or does. And so let me give you just a quick bit of instruction. A bishop, the term comes from the Bible. It's a biblical office. You can find it and read about it in First and Second Timothy and Titus and other places. And the term comes out of the Greek word episkopos, which is where you get the word the episcopal office. And it literally is often translated as simply the overseer. But I'm often reminded that the, um, that the term bishop actually comes out of the Roman uh, culture, out of the Latin language, and originally a bishop was the guy who oversaw the collection of the garbage. So, you know, I'm here... I'm here to get out of your way and let you be that. And people ask me about my pool cue, which I bring with me wherever I go. This is called a crozier. It's a Latin term. It means a shepherd's staff. And it's the symbol of the office of bishop that goes all the way back to the earliest Christian movement as a part of that. I, can always, I can't help but always remember Dr. Abbott Outler, a great professor I had in seminary, who would teach on that, and he would share, and he'd say, now, ladies and gentlemen, when you become pastors, um, they'll call you the shepherd of the flock, but I want you to remember that really is only one good shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ. And the rest of us are just sheepdogs. So as a sheepdog, I'm here to say it's great to be with you today. Let's listen together as the Word of God is cracked open and as we seek to hear what the Lord would say to us this day, not only for our edification, but for our faithfulness in living in a way that honors God with all of who we are. We're going to continue the series, as you already heard from your uh, lead pastor, Pastor David, in the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. I'll be reading there starting at the 21st verse. Let's listen that God might speak to us. Jesus said to them, Does anyone bring a lamp in order to put it under a basket or a bed? Shouldn't it be placed on a lampstand? Everything hidden will be revealed and everything secret will come out into the open. Whoever has ears to hear should pay attention. He said to them, listen carefully. God will evaluate you with the same standard you use to evaluate others. Indeed, you will receive even more. Those who have will receive more, but for those who don't have, even what they don't have will be taken away from them. My friends, this is the word of God for us this day. Say with me, thanks, say it, thanks be to God. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious Lord, crack open this word of scripture that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts and minds together, Lord, might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer this day. Amen. Have you enjoyed the Olympics? 
I, I must confess, I find it just thrilling to watch them in the downhill ski races and the slaloms and the ice skating. And I watch them on those downhills and I think, I don't, I don't think I could even walk down that hill, let alone ski down it at speed. That takes such discipline, such training and such commitment. And, and, and the ice skating just leaves me awestruck by the beauty of it. Even when they don't do well, I think it's phenomenal. And yesterday afternoon, before I came over here for our evening worship, Jolyn and I were sitting in our den and we were watching the Olympics and we saw the men's curling team win the gold medal. And I started watching that and I got thinking to myself, you know, I think I could do that. <laughs> and then I watched those guys. And watch the precision they had. I watched the way they swept with, a, with almost an elegant artistry. And I was captivated by the hand-to-eye coordination where they could just see and imagine and direct the stone so it hit just right. And after about five minutes of watching, I said to myself, you know... I couldn't do that. And it brought back an old memory from my ancient history. Now, I realize this is hard to believe, but there was a time in my life when I was on my high school varsity basketball team. I wasn't fast, uh, but I wasn't tall either. <laughs> And I played for a school called Anarga High. We were the Indians. I know it's politically incorrect, but that was the name they used in those days. And, and, uh, and it was this little bitty school, and I was the 11th of 12 guys on the squad. Now, having made the squad was not a high claim to fame because if you could breathe and walk at the same time, they put you on the team. And I remember it was one of the highlights of my life because I was a 16-year-old boy. I sat on the end of the bench next to the opposing team's cheerleaders. I mean, life never got any better. I mean, it just didn't. And, and, yet, and yet behind all that, as I watch the Olympics, I keep remembering our coach and the discipline he instilled. I have no idea what that man's first name is. I never learned it. To me, he was and is and always will be simply Coach McGee. And now some 50 years plus on, I can still hear him yelling at us and practice to run harder. I can watch anybody, I don't care what level of college or professional play, standing at the free throw line to line up a shot, and I can hear Coach McGee in my ear yelling at me, Lowry, use the same motion every time you shoot the ball. I mean, he just drove into us. A sense of practice, a sense of discipline, a sense of dedication, a sense of commitment. And in the end, despite myself, I discovered that I became a better player. And for all the glory and fun of sitting next to the opposing team's cheerleaders, I found my highest joy in getting in to the game.
Now, something like that takes place in the life of a local church and in our life as a Christian people. For you see, in many a church, church can be like that teenage boy I was sitting on the end of the bench and not having much of a worry, just sort of watching the action and enjoying this beautiful praise band and, and watching those that serve in other ways and just thinking, gee, isn't this nice? And, you know, if the sermon's real bad, you got a couple of fabulous windows to kind of gaze out of and enjoy the quiet time of contemplation Um, but the problem with my time on the end of the bench was I wasn't in the game and the problem with many a Christian life is exactly the same we aren't truly engaged in the fullness of life as it is meant to be under the lordship that means the leadership of Jesus Christ we aren't in the game and because we aren't truly a committed follower of Jesus Christ we lack the fullness the richness of life as it was meant to be and uh, just as our coach kept calling us to a higher level of play and a higher level of being a basketball player so too in this passage from Mark's gospel Jesus as our Lord and Master is calling those who would claim to be his followers to a higher level of listening. Now step back with me and let's engage ourselves in a little bit of Bible study. I want to frame it by a quotation from a noted New Testament scholar named M.T. Wright who writes about these two brief paragraphs out of the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. He writes these words and I quote him. Here Jesus seems to be telling his followers that the level to which they pay attention to what he's been teaching them will be the level at which they will receive benefits of the kingdom. Professor Wright continues, if they grasp what Jesus is saying and go deeper into it, they will get more and more from it. But if they remain at a superficial level, like the uncomprehending crowds, they will lose even the sense of God doing something new in their midst, which they have at the present. That's here that this passage comes to us. Because it comes not as something light and gentle and easy, like sitting on the end of the bench. It comes to us like the coach in practice, telling us, challenging us into a dangerously deeper journey in our faith. Make no mistake, these two brief paragraphs are a challenge from the master about how you and I live. In fact, if you drop back, if you look at the context of the passage, it comes early in Mark's gospel. We've had a a teaching ministry by Jesus that has taken place. And and in this teaching, Jesus has healed a a paralytic man. He He is taught in parables, teaching stories, if you will, about the life of the kingdom of God and the transformation that can come in a life. That is, that is committed to him as their Lord and leader and ruler and, and he shared that teaching and then significantly he calls what we those we have labeled apostles he calls them to be his first disciples his first committed disciplined Christ followers and the word apostle is simply a word that means the sent ones 
those that are sent out to, to live the way and life of Jesus and to lift up his name. And so this teaching piece comes with a crowd gathered around, but it's important to note that more specifically, Jesus wants to talk to that original group of 12. He wants to look them in the eye and say, listen to me. In fact, you hear that phrase, listen or pay attention over and over again in the context not just of this passage, but of the preceding verses. As if to say, if you're going to be my follower, my disciple, my disciplined, committed follower, this is critical. You need to pay attention. And it's from there that we move into this passage that begins with the 21st verse. It comes on the heels of a parable teaching, uh, uh, the parable, what's called the parable of the good soil, where a farmer goes out and scatters seeds, some of it on rocky ground, some of it uh, where the thorns are, and some of it in good soil. It grows up and yields fruit uh, for life. And it's here that Jesus looks at us as he looked at those first followers, the sent ones. And he speaks to us. Now before we dive into it, I, I, I want to note that the word disciple is one of those $100 words we hear all the time in a church life. It doesn't matter if you're in an independent Bible church or a Roman Catholic church or anything in between, including a Methodist church. Disciple is just sort of the word of the day. It's kind of like the soup de jour in a restaurant. And it's a great biblical word because... A disciple on a superficial level in the culture in which Jesus is in is a term that means someone that it that means someone who's a student or a follower of a master of someone else and typically in ancient culture you were a disciple of a rabbi or a philosopher or a special teacher in some way and here they're disciples of Jesus but the word if you look at it carefully has a deeper level of impact and meaning because the phrase disciple it has its roots buried in a term we know differently. And that is the term discipline. So disciples, biblically speaking, are people that are disciplined, committed followers of Jesus Christ. Sort of like Coach McGee telling me once again, it's not enough just to sit on the bench and enjoy the game. You got to practice you got to practice hard. you got to be committed and dedicated. And you got to be in the game to reach its glory, its essence. Which in the Christian faith is actually life lived at a higher level than we can ever imagine or grasp. And so out of that context, Jesus teaches them first and foremost to lift up the lamp. And he does it with these words that we read but a moment ago. He says to us in this passage, does anyone bring in a lamp in order to put it under a basket or a bed? Now what's the answer to that? Come on, everybody, it's a two-letter word, N-O. Can you say it with me? No, right? Jesus thinks it's that obvious. He's, this isn't a trick quiz. Guys, you can relax. You're out of school, you know. He comes in and says, does anybody 
put a lamp under a bed or a basket? Well, no, of course not. These disciples know that. They know that. We know that. We're meant to say no to that. We're meant to get the essence of that. And as Jesus does this teaching, he lays that before them and us by way of saying that a lamp is meant to be put on a lampstand. It's meant to be set up where it can illuminate the room and, and those around it where people who come in can see by the light that it sheds on and on and on and and so if you think about it just read the passage and ask yourself what it means so what is the lamp and what is the lampstand well again the answers aren't a trick question the lamp is the light of Christ it's his word, it's his way, it's his teaching, it's his living and sacrifice. That's the lamp. It is his love, his healing, his forgiveness. And yes, the challenge with which he calls us into a better way of living, a higher way of living. And the lampstand lifts up the light. It places it where all can see. So who's the lampstand? My friends, we are. Remember, he teaches this passage looking at these original followers, the first disciples, the apostles, the sent ones, and he says, do you put a lamp under a bushel or a bed? No. You, you put it where all can see. Be a lampstand. Lift up the light of Christ. So the application for us is straightforward. It's simple and non-negotiable. If you are my disciple, my disciplined, committed follower, Jesus is saying, lift me up by both word and deed, by the way you live and the love you share. Name his name, name my name to others. Share my light with the people of Christ and let the truth of Christ and the way of Christ be revealed be known whoever has ears to hear or to listen should do what pay attention that's what he's teaching it's basic we're to be the lampstand to lift up the light of Christ we're to do that by sharing him by name and also by deeds of love and justice and mercy that reach out with healing and compassion to anyone who is hurting and in need. So what does it look like? Well, let me give you an example. Just a simple story that I ran into in my readings from a book called The Monkey and the Fish, written by a guy named Dave Gibbons. Comes from a few years back, but not many. And he, he tells the story that once made the news almost as an afterthought was a story of a social worker living in New York City, in the area of New York City known of as the Bronx, a guy named Julio Diaz. He was a young man, 31 years old. Uh, he was single at the time. And when he would come home from work, he'd take the subway home and he'd always get off one stop before his exit. So that as he got off there, he'd go up uh, out of the subway tunnel and he would eat at a little diner for dinner where he had eaten so often. He was one of those just regulars. Everybody in the diner knew him and he knew them and, and was one of those guys who tended to just light up a place when he came into it because of his graciousness. And as the story goes, one night Julio Diaz got off the number six train at his at the stop before his, his apartment. He got off and he started to walk out out of the tunnel and a young teenage boy jumped out with a big knife in his face and threatened him 
and yelled at him to give him his wallet or he'd kill him. And you know what Julio Diaz did? He gave him his wallet. The kid pocketed and he started to turn and walk and walk away. And that's where it went weird. Let me simply read you a section of that story. As the young robber turned away, Diaz called out to him. Hey, wait a minute, Diaz said. You forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. And he took his coat off and handed it to the absolutely then dumbfounded kid. The boy looked at Diaz and he said to him, with one of those, what in the world are you doing, man, kind of looks. He said to him, he said to him, why are you doing this? And Diaz responded, he said, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. Diaz told the boy that he was on his way to dinner, and in fact, he took it a step further. He invited the kid to come with him to dinner if he would like to so that he could share uh, in some food because he looked hungry. In fact, he was hungry, he said. And lo and behold, the kid decided he'd go with Diaz. He pocketed his knife, kept the wallet, and they went into the diner. And while there, Diaz introduced him to almost everybody there. In fact, he took him back in the kitchen, introduced him even to the dishwasher, who he happened to know. And, and, and as they sat down in the booth together, and, and the employees came by and greeted him, Diaz asked the boy if he had not been taught to be kind to other people. And the boy told him, yeah, he had, but he didn't think the real world just functioned that way at all. And the conversation turned a bit more serious when Diaz asked him what he wanted out of life. And it's recorded that the boy really didn't know. I mean, he was kind of, he kind of fumbled with a question like that. And when the tab for the meal came, Diaz looked at him and said, you know, you're going to have to pay because you got my wallet and all the money. <laughs> I got I to gotta read you what Gibbons wrote about this. He said, he said, according to Diaz, the teen didn't even think about it and handed over the wallet <laughs> that he had stolen. Diaz paid the bill and gave the kid 20 bucks and just a, something he said to help him out. And in return, he asked for the knife. And the boy who had threatened Diaz with his life with that knife but a few moments earlier quickly surrendered it. Gave it to him. Afterwards, Diaz said, and I quote, treating people right regardless of how they treat you is the simplest most promising description he knows to bring people hope and to make the world a better place. Now my friends, in an angry world, this is the challenge for us, a people who would claim to be disciples, followers of Christ. It's his basic and simple as that, 
Hear me clearly. When we read this passage, we realize once again, as if almost for the first time, that the days of casual Christianity are fast fading. That this is a good thing and not something we should be afraid of. Painfully, we learn that the Christian faith uh, cannot be subsumed under any political label. Underline that word any. It does not adhere itself to the conservative wing of the Republican Party or the liberal wing of the Democratic Party or anything in between. The challenge from the master cuts across our conventions and finds its own identity in Christ and him alone, towering above all pygmy pretenders, be they party or nationality or ethnicity or economic status or educational attainment or anything else we can think of. So it is here that Christ gives us the challenge and I invite you to come with me and take a step into the depths of this passage yet one more time as we look at the second paragraph that's there. Together, let's contemplate the dangerous journey towards the great living of the fullness of life which Jesus Christ is offering to us in this teaching and calling us to place him and that life on a lampstand so that all might see by it. Look how the passage goes. He said to them, listen carefully. He said to them, listen carefully. God will evaluate you with the same standard that you evaluate others. Indeed, you will receive more. Those who have will receive more, but those who don't have, even what they don't have will be taken away from them. I got to tell you, when I, when I sat down to write this sermon and you know, you take notes and you pray about it and you wrestle with it and you talk to friends and you read commentaries and all that kind of stuff. I kept reading that 24th verse over and over again because I, I got to confess, I'm not sure I like it at all. In fact, I think I don't like it. God will evaluate me with the same standards I use to evaluate others. I really don't want that. I would really like God to exercise considerably more grace and forgiveness for me Am I the only one here? Yeah. Then I tend to give others. In fact, I'd really like God to accept me as I am and say, just well done, pat me on the shoulders, let me go on. But I am confident, as you should be as well, I am confident that God in Christ through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit truly does accept and love me, love you, with an endless, eternal love. God loves me and you too much, too much to leave us where we are. And this is the challenge of the master. The Lord is calling us to a fullness of life through deep change that begins not with others, but with ourselves. 
as counterintuitive as it seems, real love, deep love, Christ cross-bearing love as a measure of accountability intertwined with the unbreakable cord of the greatness of grace. With God, the two are inseparable. And that is the challenge of the teaching that Jesus gives us. Let's be honest, we're uncomfortable with this truth. It's a challenge from the master. It's an invitation. No, it's more than an invitation. It's a command to journey with our faiths into the depths of real living. God will evaluate you with the same standard he uses to evaluate others. Where have you heard those words before? Here's a hint. You echoed this passage but a few moments before I rose to speak. In a prayer your pastor led you in. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And you remember the line that goes, Give us this day our daily bread and for, say it with me, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against others. And here Jesus simply echoes the line that he will offer us in his great prayer. Now consider the next part of this teaching from Jesus. The 25th verse. Those who have, he says, those who have will receive more. Sounds, sounds pretty good if you think you got it, I guess. But those who don't have, this is amazing to me, even what they don't have will be taken away from them. Now here too an echo of this exists in, as well in the Gospels. It comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself and Luke reports it in the 12th chapter of his gospel. He reports it in the midst of the conflict that leads to the cross. That's a, a part of what we call the season of Lent. And it goes simply like this, verse 12, the second part of the 48th, chapter 12, the second part of the 48th verse. Much will be demanded from everyone who will be given much. And from one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. I cannot help but recall a faded fable from the dustbin of history about a soldier in the army of the great General Alexander the Great as they were marching across the then known world in their conquering glory then camped for a respite and the soldier a veteran who was valuable in battle just got out of line he got cantankerous maybe a bit tanked if you will and became a problem for his officers such that they just didn't know what to do with him and finally they called the great to Emperor Alexander to come and deal with him himself. And Alexander walked up to the soldier and he said, Soldier, what's your name? And with a sardonic, smart aleck smirk, that veteran noncom looked at him and said, Alexander. And the fable goes that General Alexander reached back with his arm and slapped the guy right to the ground, just cold-cocked him. 
and then pulled him back up, stood right in front of him and looked right into his eyes and said, either change your name or change your behavior. You see, without the physical violence, something like that is what's at stake in this passage. You remember the context. Jesus is teaching the first of those who will be called his disciples, the ones we know of as the apostles, the sent ones. And he's teaching us as well this day on our Lenten journey. We who would claim the name of Christ, we who call ourselves Christians, Christ followers, are challenged by the master. You see that this phrase stuck to the close of this passage, even what they don't have will be taken away from them. Well, we have a common saying that also is an echo of that verse. You know it full well. We'll say to each other things like, well, use it or lose it. And once again, friends, the application is straightforward. The teaching of verse 25 directs us to the reality that we, the more we apply our Christian life and witness to, deep, to a deeper living, the more we will journey with God and with each other, family and friends, and yes, even those we don't know, the more we use our faith, our witness, to Christ both by word and deed in deep, intensely practical ways, the more we will discover the true joy of life and the genuine essence of great living. This is the challenge of the Lord. It's a dangerous journey into the depths of faith. And friends, it is also always where our greatest living takes place. As I prepared this, uh, a passage I'd read in a book oh, years earlier kept sticking back in my mind. It's a book that came out, memory serves me, it was in the 80s, written by a guy named Philip Yancey, who perhaps many of you have read. He's a noted writer and Christian author. Yancey wrote a famous book called Where is God When It Hurts? He talked about interviewing people that society saw as stars and to be emulated, you know, to the, 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 the folks that were in the tabloids. And he also interviewed people that were serving in thankless tasks and jobs. And he, he wrote about them this way. He said, I was prepared to honor and admire those ser these servants who uphold, and to uphold them as inspiring examples. But he went on to write, I was not, however, prepared to envy them. But now as I reflect on two groups, side by side, the stars and the servants, the servants clearly emerge as the favored ones. 
the graced ones. They work for low pay, long hours, and no applause, wasting their talents and skills among the poor and uneducated, but somehow in the process of losing their lives, they have found them. They have received the peace that is out of this world. We are challenged by the Lord into a journey this Lent into the depths of self-evaluation. Hear Christ speaking again to you and to me and to us together. Listen carefully. The evaluation is upon us. Get this with clarity. The evaluation is not something you take home to try on your spouse or your kid or your grandkid or your neighbor that you don't like. The evaluation is something you do in the depth of your own soul that bursts out from your heart and is practiced in your actions, in your words and deeds with others. That begins, that begins right in our own home, at our places of work. And it extends through a church like this literally all around the world. It's the challenge of the master for here is the greatest journey of life, of any life. It's a journey into the depths of faith that launches from an intensely personal interior space and leaps outward in its sharing the faith and hope and love of the light of Christ with all people. My friends, be warned and be blessed. This is where great living happens. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we pray today, I pray for all those within the sound of my voice and I want to especially, Lord, include for your blessing those in the well and the well cafe. Touch us, Lord, so by your presence that we find ourselves yet more disciplined in discipleship to you, that we place you on a lampstand and lift you up for others by both what we say and how we act. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.